Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. Lord Jim was published in 14 installments in Blackwood's magazine from October 1899 to November 1900. Blackwood's had published Conrad's Heart of Darkness in serial form earlier that year. Conrad would later recall that in publishing in Blackwood's, one was in decent company and had a good sort of public, noting that there wasn't a single club and messroom and man of war in the British seas and dominions that did not contain a copy of the magazine. This podcast will present the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. Weekly episodes will be released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we'll be recommending an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insight on aspects of the novel, and we'll also be sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 1 He was an inch, perhaps two, under six feet, powerfully built, and he advanced straight at you with a slight stoop of the shoulders, head forward, and a fixed-from-under stare which made you think of a charging bull. His voice was deep, loud, and his manner displayed a kind of dogged self-assertion which had nothing aggressive in it. It seemed a necessity, and it was directed apparently as much at himself as at anybody else. He was spotlessly neat, apparelled in immaculate white from shoes to hat, and in the various eastern ports where he got his living as ship chandler's water clerk, he was very popular. A water clerk need not pass an examination in anything under the sun, but he must have ability in the abstract, and demonstrate it practically. His work consists in racing under sail, steam, or oars against other water clerks for any ship about to anchor, greeting her captain cheerily, forcing upon him a card, the business card of the ship chandler, and on his first visit on shore piloting him firmly but without ostentation to a vast, cavern-like shop, which is full of things that are eaten and drunk on board ship, where you can get everything to make her seaworthy and beautiful, from a set of chain hooks for her cable to a book of gold leaf for the carvings of her stern, and where her commander is received like a brother by a ship chandler he has never seen before. There is a cool parlor, easy chairs, bottles, cigars, writing implements, a copy of harbor regulations, and a warmth of welcome that melts the salt of a three-month's passage out of a seaman's heart. The connection thus begun is kept up, as long as the ship remains in harbor, by the daily visits of the water clerk. To the captain he is faithful like a friend and attentive like a son, with the patience of Job, the unselfish devotion of a woman, and the jollity of a boon companion. Later on the bill is sent in. It is a beautiful and humane occupation. Therefore, good water clerks are scarce. When a water clerk who possesses ability in the abstract has also the advantage of having been brought up to the sea, he is worth to his employer a lot of money and some humoring. Jim had always good wages and as much humoring as would have bought the fidelity of a fiend. Nevertheless, with black ingratitude, he would throw up the job suddenly and depart. To his employers, the reasons he gave were obviously inadequate. They said, confounded fool, as soon as his back was turned. This was their criticism on his exquisite sensibility. 
To the white men in the waterside business and to the captains of ships he was just Jim, nothing more. He had, of course, another name, but he was anxious that it should not be pronounced. His incognito, which had as many holes as a sieve, was not meant to hide a personality, but a fact. When the fact broke through the incognito, he would leave suddenly the seaport where he happened to be at the time and go to another, generally farther east. He kept to seaports because he was a seaman in exile from the sea, and had ability in the abstract, which is good for no other work but that of a water clerk. He retreated in good order towards the rising sun, and the fact followed him casually but inevitably. Thus, in the course of years, he was known successively in Bombay, in Calcutta, in Rangoon, in Penang, in Batavia, and in each of these halting places was just Jim, the water clerk. Afterwards, his keen perception of the intolerable drove him away for good from seaports and white men, even into the virgin forest, the malaise of the jungle village, where he had elected to conceal his deplorable faculty, added a word to the monosyllable of his incognito. They called him Tuan Jim, as one might say, Lord Jim. Originally he came from a parsonage. Many commanders of fine merchant ships come from these abodes of piety and peace. Jim's father possessed such certain knowledge of the unknowable as made for the righteousness of people in cottages without disturbing the ease of mind of those whom an unerring providence enables to live in mansions. The little church on a hill had the mossy grayness of a rock seen through the ragged screen of leaves. It had stood there for centuries, but the trees around probably remembered the laying of the first stone. Below, the red front of the rectory gleamed with a warm tint in the midst of grass plots, flower beds, and fir trees, with an orchard at the back, a paved stable yard to the left, and the sloping grass of greenhouses tacked along the wall of bricks. The living had belonged to a family for generations, but Jim was one of five sons, and when, after a course of light holiday literature, his vocation for the sea had declared itself, he was sent at once to a training ship for officers of the mercantile marine. He learned there a little trigonometry and how to cross top-gallant yards. He was generally liked. He had the third place in navigation and pulled stroke in the first cutter. Having a steady head with an excellent physique, he was very smart aloft. His station was in the foretop, and often from there he looked down, with the contempt of a man destined to shine in the midst of dangers, at the peaceful multitude of roofs cut in two by the brown tide of the stream, while scattered on the outskirts of the surrounding plain the factory chimneys rose perpendicular against the grimy sky, each slender like a pencil, and belching out smoke like a volcano. He could see the big ships departing, the broad-beamed ferries constantly on the move, the little boats floating far below his feet, with the hazy splendor of the sea in the distance and the hope of a stirring life in the world of adventure. On the lower deck in the babble of two hundred voices he would forget himself, and beforehand live in his mind the sea-life of light literature. He saw himself saving people from sinking ships, cutting away masts in a hurricane, swimming through a surf with a line, or as a lonely castaway, barefooted and half-naked, walking on uncovered reefs in search of shellfish to stave off starvation. He confronted savages on tropical shores, quelled mutinies on the high seas, and in a small boat upon the ocean kept up the hearts of despairing men, always an example of devotion to duty, and as unflinching as a hero in a book. Something's up. Come along. He leaped to his feet, 
The boys were streaming up the ladders. Above could be heard a great scurrying about and shouting, and when he got through the hatchway he stood still, as if confounded. It was the dusk of a winter's day. The gale had freshened since noon, stopping the traffic on the river, and now blew with the strength of a hurricane in fitful bursts that boomed like salvos of great guns firing over the ocean. The rain slanted in sheets that flicked and subsided, and between whiles Jim had threatening glimpses of the tumbling tide, the small craft jumbled and tossing along the shore, the motionless buildings and the driving mist, the broad ferry boats pitching ponderously at anchor, the vast landing stages heaving up and down and smothered in sprays. The next gust seemed to blow all this away. The air was full of flying water. There was a fierce purpose in the gale, a furious earnestness in the screech of the wind, the, in the brutal tumult of earth and sky that seemed directed at him and made him hold his breath in awe. He stood still. It seemed to him he was whirled around. He was jostled. Man the cutter! Boys rushed past him. A coaster running in for shelter had crashed through a schooner at anchor, and one of the ship's instructors had seen the accident. A mob of boys clambered on the rails, clustered around the davits. Collision, just ahead of us, Mr. Simmons saw it. A push made him stagger against the mizzenmast, and he caught hold of a rope. The old training ships, chained to her moorings, quivered all over, bowing gently head to wind, and with her scanty rigging humming in a deep bass the breathless song of her youth at sea. Lower away! He saw the boat, manned drop swiftly below the rail, and rushed after her. He heard a splash. Let go! Clear the falls! He leaned over. The river alongside seethed in frothy streaks. The cutter could be seen in the falling darkness under the spell of tide and wind that for a moment held her bound and tossing abreast of the ship. A yelling voice in her reached him faintly. Keep stroke, you young whelps. If you want to save anybody, keep stroke. And suddenly she lifted high her bow and, leaping with raised oars over a wave, broke the spell cast upon her by the wind and tide. Jim felt his shoulder gripped firmly. Too late, youngster. The captain of the ship laid a restraining hand on that boy, who seemed on the point of leaping overboard, and Jim looked up with the pain of conscious defeat in his eyes. The captain smiled sympathetically. Better luck next time. This will teach you to be smart. A shrill cheer greeted the cutter. She came dancing back half full of water and with two exhausted men washing about on her bottom boards. The tumult of the menace of wind and sea now appeared very contemptible to Jim, increasing the regret of his awe at their inefficient menace. Now he knew what to think of it. It seemed to him he cared nothing for the gale. He could affront greater perils. He would do so, better than anybody. Not a particle of fear was left. Nevertheless, he brooded apart that evening while the bowman of the cutter, a boy with a face like a girl's and big gray eyes, was the hero of the lower deck. Eager questioners crowded round him. He narrated, I just saw this head bobbing, and I dashed my boat hook in the water. It caught in his breeches, and I nearly went overboard, as I thought I would. Only old Simmons let go the tiller and grabbed my legs. The boat nearly swamped. Old Simmons is a fine old chap. I don't mind a bit him being grumpy with us. He swore at me all the time. He held my leg. But that was only his way of telling me to stick to the boat hook. Old Simmons is awfully excitable, isn't he? No, not the little fair chap, the other, the big one with the beard. When we pulled him in, he groaned, Oh, my leg, oh, my leg, and turned up with his eyes. Fancy such a big chap fainting like a girl. 
Would any of you fellows faint for a jab with a boat hook? I wouldn't. It went into his legs so far. He showed the boat hook which he had carried below for the purpose and produced a sensation. No, silly, it was not his flesh that held him. His breeches did. Lots of blood, of course. Jim thought it a pitiful display of vanity. The gale had ministered to a heroism as spurious as its own pretense of terror. He felt angry with the brutal tumult of earth and sky for taking him unawares and checking unfairly a generous readiness for narrow escapes. Otherwise, he was rather glad he had not gone into the cutter, since a lower achievement had served the turn. He had enlarged his knowledge more than those who had done the work. When all men flinched, then, he felt sure, he alone would know how to deal with the spurious menace of wind and seas. He knew what to think of it. Seen dispassionately, it seemed contemptible. He could detect no trace of emotion in himself, and the final effect of a staggering event was that, unnoticed and apart from the noisy crowd of boys, he exulted with fresh certitude in his avidity for adventure, and in a sense of many-sided courage. Chapter 2 After two years of training he went to sea, and entering the regions so well known to his imagination found them strangely barren of adventure. He made many voyages. He knew the magic monotony of existence between sky and water. He had to bear the criticism of men, the exactions of the sea, and the prosaic severity of the daily task that gives bread, but whose only reward is in the perfect love of the work. This reward eluded him. Yet he could not go back, because there is nothing more enticing, disenchanting, and enslaving than the life at sea. Besides, his prospects were good. He was gentlemanly, steady, tractable, with a thorough knowledge of his duties. And in time, when yet very young, he became chief mate of a fine ship, without ever having been tested by those events of the sea that show in the light of day the inner worth of a man, the edge of his temper, and the fiber of his stuff that reveal the quality of his resistance and the secret truth of his pretenses, not only to others but also to himself. Only once in all that time he had again a glimpse of the earnestness and the anger of the sea. That truth is not so often made apparent as people might think. There are many shades in the danger of adventures and gales, and it is only now and then that there appears on the face of facts a sinister violence of intention, that indefinable something which forces it upon the mind and the heart of a man, that this complication of accidents or those elemental furies are coming at him with a purpose of malice, with a strength beyond control, with an unbridled cruelty that means to tear out of him his hope and his fear, the pain of his fatigue and his longing for rest, which means to smash, to destroy, to annihilate all he has seen, known, loved, enjoyed, or hated, all that is priceless and necessary, the sunshine, the memories, the future, which means to sweep the whole precious world utterly away from his sight by the simple and appalling act of taking his life. Jim, disabled by a falling spar at the beginning of a week of which his Scottish captain used to say afterwards, Man, it's a perfect miracle to me how she lived through it, spent many days stretched on his back, dazed, battered, hopeless, and tormented, as if at the bottom of an abyss of unrest. He did not care what the end would be, and in his lucid moments overvalued his indifference. The danger, when not seen, has the imperfect vagueness of human thought. The fear grows shadowy, and imagination, the enemy of men, the father of all terrors, unstimulated, sinks to rest in the dullness of exhausted emotion. Jim saw nothing but the disorder of his tossed cabin. 
He lay there battened down in the midst of a small devastation, and felt secretly glad he had not to go on deck. But now and again an uncontrollable rush of anguish would grip him bodily, make him gasp and writhe under the blankets, and then the unintelligent brutality of an existence liable to the agony of such sensations filled him with a despairing desire to escape at any cost. Then fine weather returned, and he thought no more about it. His lameness, however, persisted, and when the ship arrived at an eastern port he had to go to the hospital. His recovery was slow, and he was left behind. There were only two other patients in the white men's ward, the purser of a gunboat who had broken his leg falling down a hatchway, and a kind of railway contractor from a neighboring province, afflicted by some mysterious tropical disease, who held the doctor for an ass, and indulged in secret debaucheries of patent medicine which his Tamil servant used to smuggle in with unwearied devotion. They told each other the story of their lives, played cards a little, or, yawning and in pajamas, lounged through the day in easy chairs without saying a word. The hospital stood on a hill, and a gentle breeze entering through the windows, always flung wide open, brought into the bare room the softness of the sky, the languor of the earth, the bewitching breath of the eastern waters. There were perfumes in it, suggestions of infinite repose, the gift of endless dreams. Jim looked every day over the thickets of gardens, beyond the roofs of the town, over the fronds of palms growing on the shore, at that roadstead which is a thoroughfare to the east, at the roadstead dotted by garlanded islets, lighted by festal sunshine, its ships like toys, its brilliant activity resembling a holiday pageant, with the eternal serenity of the eastern sky overhead and the smiling peace of the eastern seas possessing the space as far as the horizon. Directly he could walk without a stick, he descended into the town to look for some opportunity to get home. Nothing offered just then, and, while waiting, he associated naturally with the men of his calling in the port. These were of two kinds. Some, very few and seen there but seldom, led mysterious lives, had preserved an undefaced energy with the temper of buccaneers in the eyes of dreamers. They appeared to live in a crazy maze of plans, hopes, dangers, enterprises, ahead of civilization in the dark places of the sea, and their death was the only event in their fantastic existence that seemed to have a reasonable certitude of achievement. The majority were men who, like himself, thrown there by some accident, had remained as officers of country ships. They had now a horror of the home service, with its harder conditions, severer view of duty, and the hazard of stormy oceans. They were attuned to the eternal peace of eastern sky and sea. They loved short passages, good deck chairs, large native crews, and the distinction of being white. They shuddered at the thought of hard work and led precariously easy lives, always on the verge of dismissal, always on the verge of engagement, serving Chinamen, Arabs, half-castes, would have served the devil himself had he made it easy enough. They talked everlastingly of turns of luck, how so-and-so got charge of a boat on the coast of China, a soft thing, how this one had an easy billet in Japan somewhere, and that one was doing well in the Siamese Navy, and in all, they said, their actions, in their looks, in their persons, could be detected the soft spot, the place of decay, the determination to lounge safely through existence. To Jim, that gossiping crowd, viewed as seamen, seemed at first more unsubstantial than so many shadows, but at length he found a fascination in the sight of those men, 
in their appearance of doing so well on such a small allowance of danger and toil. In time, beside the original disdain, there grew up slowly another sentiment, and suddenly, giving up the idea of going home, he took a berth as chief mate of the Patna. The Patna was a local steamer as old as the hills, lean like a greyhound, and eaten up with rust worse than a condemned water tank. She was owned by a Chinaman, chartered by an Arab, and commanded by a sort of renegade New South Wales German, very anxious to curse publicly his native country, but who, apparently on the strength of Bismarck's victorious policy, brutalized all those he was not afraid of, and wore a blood-and-iron air, combined with a purple nose and a red mustache. After she had been painted outside and whitewashed inside, eight hundred pilgrims, more or less, were driven on board of her as she lay with steam up alongside a wooden jetty. They streamed aboard over three gangways. They streamed in, urged by faith and the hope of paradise. They streamed in with a continuous tramp and shuffle of bare feet, without a word, a murmur, or a look back. And when clear of confining rails spread on all sides over the deck, flowed forward and aft, overflowed down the yawning hatchways, filled the inner recesses of the ship, like water filling a cistern, like water flowing into crevices and crannies, like water rising silently even with the rim. Eight hundred men and women with faith and hopes, with affections and memories, they had collected there, coming from north and south and from the outskirts of the east, after treading the jungle paths, descending the rivers, coasting in prows along the shallows, crossing in small canoes from island to island, passing through suffering, meeting strange sights beset by strange fears, upheld by one desire. They came from solitary huts in the wilderness, from populous kampongs, from villages by the sea. At the call of an idea they had left their forests, their clearings, the protection of their rulers, their prosperity, their poverty, the surroundings of their youth and the graves of their fathers. They came covered with dust, with sweat, with grime, with rags, the strong men at the head of family parties, the lean old men pressing forward without hope of return, young boys with fearless eyes glancing curiously, shy little girls with tumbled long hair, the timid women muffled up and clasping to their breasts, wrapped in loose ends of soiled headcloths, their sleeping babies, the unconscious pilgrims of an exacting belief. "'Look at these cattle,' said the German skipper to his new chief mate. An Arab, the leader of that pious voyage, came last. He walked slowly aboard, handsome and grave in his white gown and large turban. A string of servants followed, loaded with his luggage. The Patna cast off and backed away from the wharf. She was headed between two small islets, crossed obliquely the anchoring ground of sailing ships, swung through a half-circle in the shadow of a hill, then ranged close to a ledge of foaming reefs. The Arab, standing up aft, recited aloud the prayer of travelers by sea. He invoked the favor of the Most High upon that journey, implored his blessing on men's toil and on the secret purposes of their hearts. The steamer pounded in the dusk of the calm water of the strait, and far astern of the pilgrim ship a screw-pile lighthouse, planted by unbelievers on a treacherous shoal, seemed to wink at her its eye of flame, as if in derision of her errand of faith. She cleared the strait, crossed the bay, continued on her way through the one-degree passage. She held on straight for the Red Sea under a serene sky, under a sky scorching and unclouded, enveloped in a fulgor of sunshine that killed all thought, oppressed the heart, 
withered all impulses of strength and energy. And under the sinister splendor of that sky and sea, blue and profound, remained still, without a stir, without a ripple, without a wrinkle, viscous, stagnant, dead. The Patna, with the slight hiss, passed over that plain, luminous and smooth, unrolled a black ribbon of smoke across the sky, left behind her on the water a white ribbon of foam that vanished at once, like the phantom of a track drawn upon a lifeless sea by the phantom of a steamer. Every morning the sun, as if keeping pace in his revolutions with the progress of the pilgrimage, emerged with a silent burst of light exactly at the same distance astern of the ship, caught up with her at noon, pouring the concentrated fire of his rays on the pious purposes of the men, glided past on his descent and sank mysteriously into the sea, evening after evening, preserving the same distance ahead of her advancing bows. The five whites on board lived amidships, isolated from the human cargo. The awnings covered the deck with a white roof from stem to stern, and a faint hum, a low murmur of sad voices, alone revealed the presence of a crowd of people upon the great blaze of the ocean. Such were the days, still, hot, heavy, disappearing one by one into the past, as if falling into an abyss forever open in the wake of the ship. And the ship, lonely under a wisp of smoke, held on her steadfast way, black and smoldering in a luminous immensity, as if scorched by a flame flicked at her from a heaven without pity. The nights descended on her like a benediction. We'll return to this installment of Lord Jim soon. But first, I want to introduce a segment that we'll include in each of these episodes, where our library director brings us an interesting article about the text of Lord Jim or Joseph Conrad's writing. You can click the link in the show notes to be taken straight to the article from today. So now I'd like to introduce Lauren Gargani, our library director. She studied at Ramapo College of New Jersey, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts in Literature, and then at Ohio University, where she pursued a Master of Arts in English. Her focus in her graduate studies was literary history in the 19th century, and she wrote her master's essay on language and sympathy in Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for including me. Absolutely. So what do you have for us today? Uh, well, we are jumping right in. That, that's a Lord Jim reference for you. Thank you. Uh, with uh, this, this is a book chapter, and I think it helps sort of set up one of the things that is really special about Conrad and, um, and Lord Jim and his background as Mariner. And there's a lot of information out there about that. Um, so there's, there's plenty of good reading. This is specifically from a book called Reading the Times, Temporality and History in 20th Century Fiction by Randall Stevenson. And the chapter is called All Those Figures, Joseph Conrad and the Maritimes. And it specifically talks about Conrad's experiences um, taking the examinations for his Mariner credentials which I think is something that a lot of people that um, at you know our organization can relate to. Mm -hmm. And it gives us some context for his experiences and how that informed his writing and was reflected in, uh, in his fiction. That's really cool. Were there any particular things that they could connect between his exams and his fiction that you thought were really interesting? 
there's a few special things going on here. And Stevenson uh, cites memoirs of Conrad's from later in his life, where he there's very clear evidence that he considered his what he called his successful acquisition and exercise of the skills required to pass his exams being a lifelong source of pride for him. Um, so this is this is something that you know he he very clearly identified with. Um, but also Conrad cites sea stories and reading maritime fiction as a major driver of his decision to go to sea. But then he acknowledges that there's a huge gulf between the romanticism of reading that literature and the actual reality of being a mariner and earning a living that way. Yeah, I imagine that reading about the sea is really different than being at sea. Yeah, yeah, that's that's his experience, certainly. And I think that that's also reflected in some of the characters he writes about. Um, and there's a quote about Marlowe as a narrator being restrained and reliable, and that sort of being essential to his um, success as a mariner. Well, that's really cool. Um, so this seems like something that you think people will benefit from reading and they'll enjoy. Um, is there anything in particular that you might point out to our students or faculty or any of our listeners um, as they're reading through this article? I think that it gives us some helpful context. So again, going back to the title of the book, this is all about time and fiction. And what Stevenson is saying, um, he's setting up a lot about Conrad's specific experiences and the timeline of this as, you know, he was taking his first officer's exam in November of 1884. And this was just around the time that the International Meridian Conference was happening and establishing Greenwich Mean Time. And Conrad was learning about very complex calculations involving time and establishing longitude. And um, that's, that's the reference in the chapter title um, to those figures. He was, you know, struggling to take a very difficult exam that he did have to retake and, um, you know, doing extremely complex calculations, um, but also doing that within this context when the world was changing, globalization was happening, there were things going on in terms of international commerce and trying to establish how we go about doing all of these things in an era that was very different. And so what I think is really valuable about reading this chapter is the way that Stevenson explains how Conrad is in some ways ahead of the curve and is anticipating all of this modern era that, you know, he ties to his experience as a mariner. And it's it's kind of fascinating. Well, that's really great. Thank you. And I understand that this is something that's available through our online resources. So yes, um, in uh, our JSTOR database, you can find this chapter um, and we'll have information on how to get there. But this is one of this is just some one of the thousands of articles on Conrad that uh, you can find in there. And, you know, again, there's there's some great insights. There's a couple great um, quotes and he cites a lot of interesting sources here that I think give us a lot of again, a lot of helpful context about what it is that makes Lord Jim such an interesting reflection of Conrad's specific knowledge as a mariner. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing what article you have for us next week. 
Wonderful. Thank you. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 3 A marvelous stillness pervaded the world, and the stars, together with the serenity of their rays, seemed to shed upon the earth the assurance of everlasting security. The young moon recurved, and shining low in the west, was like a slender shaving thrown up from a bar of gold, and the Arabian sea, smooth and cool to the eye like a sheet of ice, extended its perfect level to the perfect circle of a dark horizon. The propeller turned without a check, as though its beat had been part of the scheme of a safe universe, and on each side of the patna two deep folds of water, permanent and somber on the unwrinkled shimmer, enclosed within their straight and diverging ridges a few white swirls of foam bursting in a low hiss, a few wavelets, a few ripples, a few undulations that, left behind, agitated the surface of the sea for an instant after the passage of the ship subsided, splashing gently, calmed down at last into the circular stillness of water and sky, with the black speck of the moving hull remaining everlastingly in its center. Jim on the bridge was penetrated by the great certitude of unbounded safety and peace that could be read on the silent aspect of nature like the certitude of fostering love upon the placid tenderness of a mother's face. Below the roof of awnings, surrendered to the wisdom of white men and to their courage, trusting the power of their unbelief and the iron shell of their fireship, the pilgrims of an exacting faith slept on mats, on blankets, on bare planks, on every deck, in all the dark corners, wrapped in dyed cloths, muffled in soiled rags, with their heads resting on small bundles, with their faces pressed to bent forearms. The men, the women, the children— the old with the young, the decrepit with the lusty, all equal before sleep, death's brother. A draft of air, fanned from forward by the speed of the ship, passed steadily through the long gloom between the high bulwarks, swept over the rows of prone bodies, a few dim flames and globe lamps were hung short here and there under the ridge poles and in the blurred circles of light thrown down and trembling slightly to the unceasing vibration of the ship appeared a chin upturned, two closed eyelids, a dark hand with silver rings, a meager limb draped in a torn covering, a head bent back, a naked foot, a throat bared and stretched as if offering itself to the knife. The well-to-do had made for their families shelters with heavy boxes and dusty mats. The poor reposed side by side with all they had on earth tied up in a rag under their heads. The lone old men slept with drawn-up legs upon their prayer carpets, with their hands over their ears and one elbow on each side of the face. A father, his shoulders up and his knees under his forehead, dozed dejectedly by a boy who slept on his back with tousled hair, and one arm commandingly extended. A woman covered from head to foot like a corpse with a piece of white sheeting had a naked child in the hollow of each arm. The Arab's belongings, piled right aft, made a heavy mound of broken outlines with a cargo lamp swung above and a great confusion of vague forms behind. Gleams of paunchy brass pots, the footrest of a deck chair, blades of spears, the straight scabbard of an old sword leaning against a heap of pillows, the spout of a tin coffee pot. 
The patent log on the taffrail periodically rang a single tinkling stroke for every mile traversed on an errand of faith. Above the mass of sleepers, a faint and patient sigh at times floated, the exhalation of a troubled dream, and short metallic clangs bursting out suddenly in the depths of the ship, the harsh scrape of a shovel, the violent slam of a furnace door exploded brutally, as if the men handling the mysterious things below had their breasts full of fierce anger. While the slim high hull of the steamer went on evenly ahead, without a sway of her bare masts, cleaving continuously the great calm of the waters under the inaccessible serenity of the sky. Jim paced athwart, and his footsteps in the vast silence were loud to his own ears, as if echoed by the watchful stars. His eyes, roaming about the line of the horizon, seemed to gaze hungrily into the unattainable, and did not see the shadow of the coming event. The only shadow on the sea was the shadow of the black smoke pouring heavily from the funnel its immense streamer, whose end was constantly dissolving in the air. Two Malays, silent and almost motionless, steered, one on each side of the wheel, whose brass rim shone fragmentarily in the oval of light thrown out by the binnacle. Now and then a hand, with black fingers alternately letting go and catching hold of revolving spokes, appeared in the illumined part, the links of wheel chains ground heavily in the grooves of the barrel. Jim would glance at the compass, would glance around the unattainable horizon, would stretch himself till his joints cracked, with a leisurely twist of the body in the very excess of well-being. And, as if made audacious by the invincible aspect of the peace, he felt he cared for nothing that could happen to him to the end of his days. From time to time he glanced idly at a chart pegged out with four drawing pins on a low three-legged table abaft the steering gear case. The sheet of paper portraying the depths of the sea presented a shiny surface under the light of a bull's-eye lamp lashed to a stanchion, a surface as level and smooth as the gleaming surface of the waters. Parallel rulers with a pair of dividers reposed on it. The ship's position at last noon was marked with a small black cross, and the straight pencil line drawn firmly as far as Param figured the course of the ship, the path of souls toward the holy place, the promise of salvation, the reward of eternal life, while the pencil with its sharp end touching the Somali coast lay round and still like a naked ship's spar floating in the pool of a sheltered dock. How steady she goes, thought Jim with wonder, with something like gratitude for this high peace of sea and sky. At such times his thoughts would be full of valorous deeds. He loved these dreams and the success of his imaginary achievements. They were the best parts of life, its secret truth, its hidden reality. They had a gorgeous virility, the charm of vagueness. They passed before him with an heroic tread. They carried his soul away with them and made it drunk with the divine filter of an unbounded confidence in itself. There was nothing he could not face. He was so pleased with the idea that he smiled, keeping perfunctorily his eyes ahead, and when he happened to glance back he saw the white streak of the wake drawn as straight by the ship's keel upon the sea as the black line drawn by the pencil upon the chart. The ash buckets racketed, clanking up and down the stokehold ventilators, and this tin pot clatter warned him the end of his watch was near. He sighed with content, with regret as well at having to part from that serenity which fostered the adventurous freedom of his thoughts. 
He was a little sleepy, too, and felt a pleasurable languor running through every limb as though all the blood in his body had turned to warm milk. His skipper had come up noiselessly, in pajamas and with his sleeping jacket flung wide open. Red of face, only half awake, the left eye partly closed, the right staring stupid and glassy, he hung his big head over the chart and scratched his ribs sleepily. There was something obscene in the sight of his naked flesh. His bared breast glistened soft and greasy, as though he had sweated out his fat in his sleep. He pronounced a professional remark in a voice harsh and dead, resembling the rasping sound of a wood file on the edge of a plank. The fold of his double chin hung like a bag triced up close under the hinge of his jaw. Jim started, and his answer was full of deference, but the odious and fleshy figure, as though seen for the first time in a revealing moment, fixed itself in his memory forever as the incarnation of everything vile and base that lurks in the world we love. In our own hearts we trust for our salvation, in the men that surround us, in the sights that fill our eyes, in the sounds that fill our ears, and in the air that fills our lungs. The thin gold shaving of the moon floated slowly downwards, had lost itself on the darkened surface of the waters, and the eternity beyond the sky seemed to come down nearer to the earth, with the augmented glitter of the stars, with the more profound somberness and the luster of the half-transparent dome covering the flat disk of an opaque sea. The ship moved so smoothly that her onward motion was imperceptible to the senses of men, as though she had been a crowded planet speeding through the dark spaces of ether behind the swarm of suns, in the appalling and calm solitudes awaiting the breath of future creations. "'Hot is no name for it down below,' said a voice. Jim smiled without looking round. The skipper presented an unmoved breadth of back. It was a renegade's trick to appear pointedly unaware of your existence, unless it suited his purpose to turn at you with a devouring glare before he let loose a torrent of foamy, abusive jargon that came like a gush from a sewer. Now he emitted only a sulky grunt, the second engineer at the head of the bridge ladder, kneading with damp palms a dirty sweat rag, unabashed, continued the tale of his complaints. The sailors had a good time of it up here, and what was the use of them in the world? He would be blowed if he could see. The poor devils of engineers had to get the ship along anyhow, and they could very well do the rest too. By gosh, they— Shut up, growled the German stolidly. Oh yes, shut up, and when anything goes wrong you fly to us, don't you? went the other. He was more than half cooked, he expected. But anyway, now, he did not mind how much he sinned, because these last three days he had passed through a fine course of training for the place where the bad boys go when they die, Bagash he had, besides being made jolly well deaf by the blasted racket below. The derned compound surface-condensing rotten scrap heap rattled and banged down there like an old deck winch, only more so. And what made him risk his life every night and day that God made amongst the refuse of a breaking-up yard flying round at fifty-seven revolutions was more than he could tell. He must have been born reckless, Bagash. He— "'Where did you get drink?' inquired the German, very savage, but motionless in the light of the binnacle, like a clumsy effigy of a man cut out of a block of fat. Jim went on smiling at the retreating horizon. His heart was full of generous impulses, and his thought was contemplating his own superiority. "'Drink!' repeated the engineer with amiable scorn. 
He was hanging on with both hands to the rail, a shadowy figure with flexible legs. Not from you, Captain. You're far too mean, Bagash. You would let a good man die sooner than give him a drop of schnapps. That's what you Germans call economy, penny-wise, pound-foolish. He became sentimental. The chief had given him a four-finger nip about ten o'clock. Only once, help me. Good old chief. But as to getting the old fraud out of his bunk, a five-ton crane couldn't do it. Not it. Not tonight, anyhow. He was sleeping sweetly like a little child with a bottle of prime brandy under his pillow. From the thick throat of the commander of the Patna came a low rumble, on which the sound of the word Schwein fluttered high and low, like a capricious feather in a faint stir of air. He and the chief engineer had been cronies for a good few years, serving the same jovial, crafty old Chinaman with horn-rimmed goggles and strings of red silk plaited into the venerable gray hairs of his pigtail. The quayside opinion of the Patna's home port was that these two, in the way of brazen peculation, had done together pretty well everything you can think of. Outwardly, they were badly matched, one dull-eyed, malevolent, and of soft, fleshy curves, the other lean, all hollows, with a head long and bony like the head of an old horse, with sunken cheeks, with sunken temples, with an indifferent, glazed glance of sunken eyes. He had been stranded out east somewhere, in Canton, in Shanghai, or perhaps in Yokohama. He probably did not care to remember himself the exact locality, nor yet the cause of his shipwreck. He had, in mercy to his youth, kicked quietly out of his ship twenty years ago or more, and it might have been so much worse for him that the memory of the episode had in it hardly a trace of misfortune. Then, steam navigation expanding in these seas, and men of his craft being scarce at first, he had got on after a sort. He was eager to let strangers know in a dismal mumble that he was an old stager out here. When he moved, a skeleton seemed to sway loose in his clothes. His walk was mere wandering, and he was given to wander thus around the engine room skylight, smoking, without relish, doctored tobacco in a brass bowl at the end of a cherrywood stem four feet long, with the imbecile gravity of a thinker evolving a system of philosophy from the hazy glimpse of a truth. He was usually anything but free with his private store of liquor, but on that night he had departed from his principles, so that his second, a weak-headed child of Wapping, what with the unexpectedness of the treat and the strength of the stuff, had become very happy, cheeky, and talkative. The fury of the New South Wales German was extreme. He puffed like an exhaust pipe, and Jim, faintly amused by the scene, was impatient for the time when he could get below. The last ten minutes of the watch were irritating like a gun that hangs fire. Those men did not belong to the world of heroic adventure. They weren't bad chaps, though. Even the skipper himself. His gorge rose at the mass of panting flesh from which issued gurgling mutters, a cloudy trickle of filthy expressions. But he was too pleasurably languid to dislike actively this or any other thing. The quality of these men did not matter. He rubbed shoulders with them, but they could not touch him. He shared the air they breathed, but he was different. Would the skipper go for the engineer? The life was easy, and he was too sure of himself. Too sure of himself, too. The line dividing his meditation from a surreptitious doze on his feet was thinner than a thread in a spider's web. The second engineer was coming by easy transitions to the consideration of his finances and of his courage. Who's drunk? I? No, no, Captain, that, would, that won't do. 
You ought to know by this time the chief ain't free-hearted enough to make a sparrow drunk, bagosh. I've never been the worse for liquor in my life. The stuff ain't made yet that would make me drunk. I could drink liquid fire against your whiskey peg for peg, bagosh, and keep as cool as a cucumber. If I thought I was drunk, I would jump overboard, do away with myself, bagosh. I would, straight. And I won't go off the bridge. Where do you expect me to take the air on a night like this, eh? On deck amongst the vermin down there? Likely, ain't it? And I am not afraid of anything you can do. The German lifted two heavy fists to heaven and shook them a little without a word. I don't know what fear is, pursued the engineer, with the enthusiasm of sincere conviction. I am not afraid of doing all the bloomin' work in this rotten hooker bagosh. And a jolly good thing for you that there are some of us about the world that aren't afraid of their lives. Or where would you be, you and this old thing here with her plates like brown paper? Brown paper, salt me. It's all very fine for you. You get a power of pieces out of her one way and another. But what about me? What do I get? A measly hundred and fifty dollars a month and find yourself. I wish to ask you respectfully. Respectfully, mind you. Who wouldn't chuck a dratted job like this? It ain't safe, salt me. It ain't. Only I am one of the fearless fellows. He let go the rail and made ample gestures, as if demonstrating in the air the shape and extent of his valor. His thin voice darted in prolonged squeaks upon the sea. He tiptoed back and forth for the better emphasis of utterance, and suddenly pitched down head first as though he had been clubbed from behind. He said, Damn! as he tumbled. An instant of silence followed upon his screeching. Jim and the skipper staggered forward by common accord and, catching themselves up, stood very stiff and still, gazing, amazed, at the undisturbed level of the sea. Then they looked upwards at the stars. What had happened? The wheezy thump of the engines went on. Had the earth been checked in her course? They could not understand, and suddenly the calm sea, the sky without a cloud, appeared formidably insecure in their immobility, as if poised on the brow of yawning destruction. The engineer rebounded vertically full length and collapsed again in a vague heap. This heap said, "'What's that?' in the muffled accents of profound grief. A faint noise as of thunder, of thunder infinitely remote, less than a sound, hardly more than a vibration, passed slowly, and the ship quivered in response, as if the thunder had growled deep down in the water. The eyes of the two Malays at the wheel glittered towards the white men, but their dark hands remained closed on the spokes. The sharp hull driving on its way seemed to rise a few inches in succession through the, its whole length, as though it had become pliable and settled down again rigidly to its work of cleaving the smooth surface of the sea. Its quivering stopped, and the faint noise of thunder ceased all at once, as though the ship had steamed across a narrow belt of vibrating water and of humming air. Chapter 4 A month or so afterwards, when Jim, in answer to pointed questions, tried to tell honestly the truth of this experience, he said, speaking of the ship, She went over whatever it was as easy as a snake crawling over a stick. The illustration was good. The questions were aiming at facts, and the official inquiry was being held in the police court of an eastern port. He stood elevated in the witness box, with burning cheeks in a cool, lofty room. The big framework of punkas moved gently to and fro high above his head, and from below many eyes were looking at him out of dark faces, out of white faces, out of red faces, out of faces attentive, spellbound, 
as if all these people sitting in orderly rows upon narrow benches had been enslaved by the fascination of his voice. It was very loud. It rang startlingly in his own ears. It was the only sound audible in the world, for the terribly distinct questions that extorted his answers seemed to shape themselves in anguish and pain within his breast, came to him poignant and silent like a terrible questioning of one's conscience. Outside the court the sun blazed. Within was the wind of great punkas that made you shiver, the shame that made you burn, the attentive eyes whose glance stabbed. The face of the presiding magistrate, clean-shaved and impassable, looked at him deadly pale between the red faces of the two nautical assessors. The light of a broad window under the ceiling fell from above on the heads and shoulders of the three men, and they were fiercely distinct in the half-light of the big courtroom, where the audience seemed composed of staring shadows. They wanted facts. Facts! They demanded facts from him, as if facts could explain anything. After you had concluded that you had collided with something floating awash, say a waterlogged wreck, you were ordered by your captain to go forward and ascertain if there was any damage done. Did you think it likely from the force of the blow? asked the assessor sitting to the left. He had a thin horseshoe beard, salient cheekbones, and with both elbows on the desk clasped his rugged hands before his face, looking at Jim with thoughtful blue eyes, the other a heavy, scornful man, thrown back in his seat, his left arm extended full length, drummed delicately with his fingertips on a blotting pad. In the middle of the magistrate, upright in the roomy armchair, his head inclined slightly on the shoulder, had his arms crossed on his breast and a few flowers in a glass vase by the side of his inkstand. I did not, said Jim. I was told to call no one and to make no noise for fear of creating a panic. I thought the precaution reasonable. I took one of the lamps that were hung under the awnings and went forward. After opening the four-peak hatch, I heard splashing in there. I lowered then the lamp the whole drift of its lanyard and saw that the four-peak was more than half full of water already. I knew then there must be a big hole below the water line. He paused. Yes, said the big assessor, with a dreamy smile at the blotting pad. His fingers played incessantly, touching the paper without noise. I did not think of danger just then. I might have been a little startled. All this happened in such a quiet way, and so very suddenly. I knew there was no other bulkhead in the ship but the collision bulkhead separating the forepeak from the forehold. I went back to tell the captain. I came upon the second engineer getting up at the foot of the bridge ladder. He seemed dazed and told me he thought his left arm was broken. He had slipped on the top step while getting down while I was forward. He exclaimed, My God, that rotten bulkhead'll give way in a minute, and the damned thing will go down under us like a lump of lead. He pushed me away with his right arm and ran before me up the ladder, shouting as he climbed. His left arm hung by his side. I followed up in time to see the captain rush at him and knock him down flat on his back. He did not strike him again. He stood bending over him and speaking angrily, but quite low. I fancy he was asking him why the devil he didn't go and stop the engines instead of making a row about it on deck. I heard him say, Get up! Run! Fly! He swore also. The engineer slid down the starboard ladder and bolted round the skylight to the engine room companion, which was on the port side. He moaned as he ran. He spoke slowly. He remembered swiftly and with extreme vividness. He could have reproduced like an echo the moaning of the engineer for the better information of these men who wanted facts. 
after his first feeling of revolt, he had come round to the view that only a meticulous precision of statement would bring out the true horror behind the appalling face of things. The facts those men were so eager to know had been visible, tangible, open to the senses, occupying their place in space and time, requiring for their existence a 1,400-ton steamer and 27 minutes by the watch. They made a whole that had features, shades of expression, a complicated aspect that could be remembered by the eye, and something else besides, something invisible, a directing spirit of perdition that dwelt within like a malevolent soul in a detestable body. He was anxious to make this clear. This had not been a common affair. Everything in it had been of the utmost importance, and fortunately he remembered everything. He wanted to go on talking for truth's sake, perhaps for his own sake also, and while his utterance was deliberate, his mind positively flew round and round the serried circle of facts that had surged up all about him to cut him off from the rest of his kind. It was like a creature that, finding itself imprisoned within an enclosure of high stakes, dashes round and round, distracted in the night, trying to find a weak spot, a crevice, a place to scale, some opening through which it may squeeze itself and escape. This awful activity of mind made him hesitate at times in his speech. The captain kept on moving here and there on the bridge. He seemed calm enough, only he stumbled several times, and once, as I stood speaking to him, he walked right into me as though he had been stone blind. He made no definite answer to what I had to tell. He mumbled to himself. All I heard of it were a few words that sounded like confounded steam and infernal steam, something about steam. I thought he was becoming irrelevant. A question to the point cut short his speech like a pang of pain, and he felt extremely discouraged and weary. He was coming to that, he was coming to that, and now, checked brutally, he had to answer by yes or no. He answered truthfully by a curt, yes, I did, and a fair of face, big of frame, with young, gloomy eyes. He held his shoulders upright above the box while his soul writhed within him. He was made to answer another question so much to the point and so useless, then waited again. His mouth was tastelessly dry, as though he had been eating dust, then salt and bitter as after a drink of seawater. He wiped his damp forehead, passed his tongue over parched lips, felt a shiver run down his back. The big assessor had dropped his eyelids and drummed on without a sound, careless and mournful. The eyes of the other above the sunburnt, clasped fingers seemed to glow with kindliness. The magistrate had swayed forward, his pale face hovered near the flowers, and then dropping sideways over the arm of his chair, he rested his temple in the palm of his hand. The wind of the punkas eddied down on their heads, on the dark-faced natives wound about in voluminous draperies, on the Europeans sitting together very hot and, and in drill suits that seemed to fit them as close as their skins and holding their round pith hats on their knees. While gliding along the walls, the court peons, buttoned tight in long white coats, flitted rapidly to and fro, running on bare toes, red-sashed, red turban on head, as noiseless as ghosts, and on the alert like so many retrievers. Jim's eyes, wandering in the intervals of his answers, rested upon a white man who sat apart from the others, with his face worn and clouded, but with quiet eyes that glanced straight, interested, and clear, Jim answered another question and was tempted to cry out, "'What's the good of this? What's the good?' He tapped with his foot slightly, bit his lip, and looked away over their heads. He met the eyes of the white man. 
The glance directed at him was not the fascinated stare of the others. It was an act of intelligent volition. Jim, between two questions, forgot himself so far as to find leisure for a thought. This fellow, ran the thought, looks at me as though he could see somebody or something past my shoulder. He had come across that man before, in the street, perhaps. It was positive he had never spoken to him. For days, for many days, he had spoken to no one, but had held silent, incoherent, and endless converse with himself, like a prisoner alone in his cell, or like a wayfarer lost in a wilderness. At present he was answering questions that did not matter, though they had a purpose, but he doubted whether he would ever again speak out as long as he lived. The sound of his own truthful statements confirmed his deliberate opinion that speech was of no use to him any longer. That man there seemed to be aware of his hopeless difficulty. Jim looked at him, then turned away resolutely, as after a final parting. And later on, many times in distant parts of the world, Marlowe showed himself willing to remember Jim, to remember him at length, in detail and audibly. Perhaps it would be after dinner, on a veranda draped in motionless foliage and crowned with flowers, in the deep dusk speckled by fiery cigar ends. The elongated bulk of each cane chair harbored a silent listener. Now and then, a small red glow would move abruptly, an expanding light up the fingers of a languid hand, part of a face in profound repose, or flash a crimson gleam in the pair of pensive eyes overshadowed by a fragment of an unruffled forehead. And with the very first word uttered, Marlowe's body, extended at rest in the seat, would become very still, as though his spirit had winged its way back into the lapse of time and were speaking through his lips from the past. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text, as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Special thanks to Lauren Gargani and Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.